This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. The next Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, The Game. Scoop Duck in Hi-Fi, Matt Bagley, Justin Hopkins from ScoopDuck.com. I want to talk Natty, got to get into that, but obviously you're a Duck fan. You're listening to this right now because of the Ducks. How about Oregon? We finally have a play caller. Yeah, and so... Here's where you and I, you know, okay, so I guess let's preface this. Let's let's set the expectation now. You and I are recording this the midday of a Wednesday. Yes. There has been no official announcement from Oregon on this hire. But obviously, myself, Brett McMurphy, Bruce Feldman, everybody's saying that this is the hire. Yeah. So I you guess, confirmed it last night on Twitter. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll assume everything's going to go through and this is good to go. If for any reason something crazy happens and next week we're doing a totally different podcast, just apologize in advance. Yeah, we're still <laughs> waiting on official word from Oregon, but at this point, you feel pretty good about it because, you know, Feldman's jumping in and saying the same thing, and, and Brett McMurphy obviously was the first to report it. Um, you know, I feel good about my sources saying it's pretty much a done deal. So it you, it so just means the ink's not dry yet. So you're saying there's a chance that we're all led astray and the Ducks are going to hire Bobby Petrino out of left field? Yeah, yeah. Or, or uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw a tweet last night that said, uh, oh, what's his name's getting a job? Uh, the Baylor coach, that got, uh, right. Riles. Well, that was the joke. Yeah, no, is, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. Amazing how right. that went down. That went down. Or Pretty maybe good. they pull a George O'Leary on him. Yeah. You know, they find his resume, and oops, there's yeah. a lie in here somewhere, yeah. and right. you don't get it. Oh, your middle name's Frank? Oh, never mind, Joe. We, <laughs> we can't hire you now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but let's assume he's the guy. Yeah, let's assume he's the guy. Uh, obviously, you can, you know, I can see the reaction on my own board. I can see the reaction on Twitter. I think the only thing that trumps how exciting Oregon fans feel about it is all the Husky fans. Bereft. Yeah, they really are. Yeah. I mean, you you saw even you know I'll use the term loosely. You saw some of their reporters and their and their media kind of like, whoa, Oregon got it done. Yeah, you know, because the the John Donovan hire was clearly uh, lackluster. Now, who knows on the field? Obviously, you got to. I mean, you got to take it to the field, and we'll see. But certainly, a very intriguing storyline for next year. You know, Oregon hires the guy that replaced the guy at the last job that UW hired. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the surface, it seems like. Obviously, one's the clear-cut winner there. Yeah, yeah. it seems like a win for Oregon. I'll put it this way. One of my coworkers is a Penn State grad mm-hmm. and and a obsessed Nittany Lions fan. This guy's watching every game. Big Ten Network is on his TV 24-7. And he told me, if the this was a week ago, gotcha. if the Ducks can get more head, it's a home run. Right. Because of the background with Saquon Barkley and McSorley and all the high flyers they had on that team. And then literally the same day, the Huskies grabbed John Donovan. And I said, hey, what are your thoughts on John Donovan, Penn State guy? And he goes, well, he's the opposite of Moorhead. <laughs> right? He's the anti-Moorhead. He's the anti-Moorhead. <laughs> you don't want to hire him. So Husky fans are kicking themselves. They thought they had him. Now they don't. Yeah. And Duck fans maybe hit a home run. Well, and I'll, I'll say this. So before, you know, at least for myself, fans can do whatever they want. They're fans. That's, that's the name of the game. Before I go too far away, 
you know, I, I I look at the John Donovan situation a little bit like Marcus Arroyo. Marcus Arroyo failed at, at previous stops headed to Oregon. And whether you like or you dislike Marcus Arroyo and his time at Oregon, he was at least moderately successful on offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, Oregon put up some pretty good stats and, and, right. and won games. So my point to that is these guys can get better. You know, it was a few years ago for Donovan to be coaching at Penn State. Who yes. knows? Maybe he went and learned a bunch in the in the last three years or whatever and got, you know, a lot better. Um, as for Moorhead, he's pretty well proven, so there's not really that area there that we have to worry about. Um, you know, but I do, I do think that there could be a little bit of caution by fans going too far. Ha-ha, we got the guy that, you know, your guy got fired and we got the guy that – you know, kicked his butt or whatever, you know. Right. Maybe that's the case, and I get the storyline. But, again, I mean, these guys are getting hired for a reason. These guys are in this profession for a reason. And, you know, some guys do get better. I mean, hell, look at Ed Orgeron. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if USC would like a mulligan on that one. <laughs> I think USC needs about 10 mulligans here <laughs> lately. <laughs> uh, Q- but that's a pretty big one. QB11 is going to join us in a couple minutes. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on that offense and, and what Joe Moorhead can bring to the table. Yeah. But I, I kind of want to take the same approach that we did the podcast when the Ducks hired Andy Avalos because we were right on that finger on the pulse of the day that hire was announced. You said, we're taping, we're going to do a podcast. And we broke it down for like an hour. Yeah. So when you just look at this hire, as a, a guy that covers Oregon, knows this staff, knows what Mario wants, how do you feel about this Moorhead hire? Uh, I look at it. Uh, I look at it this way. Uh, I believe, and as I, I know, I reported on the site, and I, I feel like I covered this situation, you know, uh, uh, pretty detailed. Now, you know, could I have accurately predicted Moorhead was going to be the guy three weeks ago? Of course not. First off, he had a job at that point in time. Yes. Um, you know, and that's not the point, not for me to say, oh, I was the first to predict, you know, I mentioned he was, you know, when he got, uh, fired from Mississippi state, I mentioned he was definitely a candidate at that point. Um, you know, I know I mentioned that his interview, you know, at Oregon, I know I was one of the first ones to report on that, but I feel like, I feel like it was a, a legitimate, a legitimate three-way battle between Jed Fish, Will Hall and Joe Moorhead. And, and I say that, and I do believe it was, you know, I, I think it's been relayed that way as well. You've seen other media outlets basically report, and those were the, the three guys. I think Bruce Feldman said, said the same. The way I view it is this. I think, I think Jed Fish is a guy that could have come and improve, improved or tweaked the offense just enough and worked with the quarterbacks a little bit, especially given his experience at the Rams. And, and, and Oregon would have been successful. Mm-hmm. They would have been fine. Right. Because, uh, again, the offense didn't need to be overhauled. Yeah. Could it be better? Absolutely. But it didn't need to be overhauled like the defense did three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will Hall, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to call him young because he's 38, but a bit of a bright and young and upcoming guy. Obviously, you, you make the jump from Tulane to Oregon. That's a pretty big jump. Um, just, just on the, uh, the resume alone there, I think he's a guy that Oregon could have hired. He probably would have been fine, probably needed to be groomed for a year, a little bit, maybe with the other coaches and their experience, but could have been at Oregon for the, for a while, you know, could have been a guy you hire and he gets better and your offense will get better. And you know, everything goes there to me. Joe Moorhead was the win now guy. He was the Let's go get him. He's probably going to change our offense a little bit more than we'd like to, but he's probably our best win now candidate. And he may not may not be here for a long time, 
but it'll probably be a good time while he's here. So that to me is how I look at the three candidates. I believe it's a pretty easy call if you're Mario Cristobal and you're and if you said, hey, look, I'm going to scrap the idea that I don't want to change the offense too much. I want to win now. I think we got a chance to win now. Who gives me the best shot at that? I think it was Joel Moorhead. Is it safe to say this move doesn't push anybody out? Uh, you know, too early to tell. Obviously, we're still waiting on a formal announcement from Oregon first and foremost. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess the big, you know, the big question becomes Jim Mastro. He certainly wanted the job, much like Keith Hayward wanted to be D.C. when Avalos was hired. Um, I think Jim Mastro does a really good job with the offense. I know he's he's definitely involved on a on a day to day, week to week basis. Right. Um, you know, I understand fans that might have critiqued that maybe he's not ready yet, but we don't know. It's really unfair to say that he might have been. We won't know now. Um, I think I, I think this Jim Mastro is really the only one this should affect. Uh, a he's going to retain his run game coordinator job. You know, there's no question. You're not going to demote him. There's no reason to demote him. No, he's but, really good at what he does. Yeah, the run game was the strength of Oregon's offense. Let's be real here uh, this this past season. Um, so he's going to retain that as long as he's happy retaining that. My belief is, is if Jim Mastro, I believe Jim Mastro is really close to being ready to be an OC. I think he can learn a lot from Joe Moorhead, and I don't think Joe Moorhead will be at Oregon a long time. I think much like Andy Avalos, you might have grabbed a guy for a year two, maybe three, and you're probably going to get some really good results out of them. But let's be real about it. A guy like Joe Moorhead's probably not going to be at Oregon forever. You're thinking head coach somewhere? Yeah, I think he'll get a head coach opportunity. I, I mean, look, it didn't go well in Mississippi State, but again, uh, these guys get fired, and if they get back to work and they learn the areas where they had where they had failures at and get better, I mean, let's Mario Cristobal was fired. Right. Okay, Let's. I mean, let's be real. Ed Orgeron. Not retained by USC. I mean, basically, he's been fired as well in the past before USC. If these guys are getting better at their craft and, and and really elevating themselves, they're going to get opportunities again. I think a guy like Joe Moorhead, maybe he wasn't uh, disciplined well enough at, at Mississippi State. Will he learn from that? Maybe it's just not his demeanor. I don't know. But it, if there's anybody that could probably teach him, he's about to learn from Mario Cristobal on that front. And I I mean, he's probably one of the top two or three coaches you can learn from in terms of a discipline and controlling the, you know, the locker room and, and controlling the culture of your team. You know, obviously Mario Cristobal is going to be the guy that really helps teach him. Yeah, I think Joe Moorhead can be groomed for a head coach once again and probably will be just like I think Jim Mastro can be groomed to be the offensive coordinator at Oregon if that scenario takes place. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that takeaway from this that you have a guy waiting in the wings should you need him in mm-hmm. Jim Mastro. Yeah. I think he's fantastic. And I think that Moorhead was the best out of a really fun list of candidates. Yeah. I, I said this on the site. I think when it was when when we were going through the Andy Avalos or the defensive coordinator search, I think you had some pretty good candidates, and I'll include Keith Hayward in that. But then you had one that was like home run, home run, way above, no brainer, blew the socks off. Yeah, unquestionably, I'm hiring this guy. Yes, and I think in this particular scenario for Mario Cristobal, it wasn't as clear cut on offensive coordinator. I know for fans it was, but you had a lot of different variables. Everybody's just looking at we want to win the most games we can next year, mm-hmm. and I get that. 
But that's not that wasn't Mario Cristobal's vision when he showed up at Oregon. He, the first thing he did when he showed up at Oregon is improve the strength and conditioning program. Not so they could win that next season, but so they can sustain winning right. for the future. It's uh, it's not enough to just win. Right. You need to win a certain way. Yeah. There's an Oregon brand that he's building and you had to factor that in. Yeah. And I think he did that. Yeah, I think, like I said just a few minutes ago, I think Jed Fish and Will Hall are guys you probably could have kept around a little longer, and I think they would have been successful and probably ultimately hung around longer than Joe Moorhead probably will. Would they have been as immediately successful next year as Joe Moorhead could be? I don't know. You know, obviously yeah. we're st- we're talking in a lot of hypotheticals at this point. I know fans are excited. They should be excited. As you said, Penn State fans are saying, hey, that's a great hire. I think a lot of Mississippi State fans are saying the same thing as well. Hey, that's a great hire. Good job by Oregon. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, and, and I'm not trying to dash that at all. But I do think there was three pretty good candidates, and although to fans Joe Moorhead was the clear-cut guy, I'm not so sure that it was as clear-cut as the Anna Avalos situation was. And uh, one more thing, yeah. and we'll get to QB 11. First two games of the year are oh, no slouch for no. this team. Right. You can you can look at North Dakota State and say, oh, it's FCS. Oh, well, they got that in the bag. That's a defending national champs, and they kill it in FCS yes. for anybody who doesn't know. Like, they are the program. They will beat you if you're sleeping on them. Right. And then you welcome the Buckeyes to town. Yeah. Thank God Chase, Chase Young left, right? Right. Yeah. But, but even, no. even without Chase Young, I, I think there might be a little part of this process that just nudged Mario Cristobal towards experience. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if he'd go that route, but you bring on a guy in Joe Moorhead who was at Penn State. You bring in a guy who then worked in the SEC and and knows how to game plan against yeah. some of the toughest schools in the country. Right. You don't want any question marks heading into week two against Ohio State. Yeah, I, 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 you've warmed up something that I really want to get on here before we bring on QB11. I want fans to be excited about this hire, and I think that that's terrific. But you need to take – and I'm talking to you. I know you're listening. You're thinking, no, not me. He's not talking to me. I am talking to you. <laughs> Here's the trick. You're starting four-fifths of a new offensive line next season. Yes. You're bringing in a new quarterback next season. Yes. You're bringing in a brand-new offensive coordinator next season. Yes. You know what that's a recipe for? Brand-new losses. Yeah, some learning curves, people. (laughs) Now, you know, of course, you go through the spring, and you work on these things and try to get as far as you can. But let's face it, you can only go so far. You can't just throw the kitchen sink at the offense and say, good luck in the spring. You're going to basically warm them up to some principles, some terminology, try to get things to be a little bit more familiar so that they're thinking less. But let's face it, you're going to see a lot of mistakes in the spring game. I know you are, and fans are going to get on the boards and be like, oh, crap, Moorhead was a terrible hire. We suck. You know, Tyler Shuck sucks. All this stuff's going to come out. Look, the springtime is where they make mistakes and they figure out how to fix them. Yes. Joe Moorhead's going to make mistakes in the springtime. He's not going to show you anything in the springtime. He's not going to unload the playbook in the spring game so that you could see all these exotic looks that he has and these different things. It's going to be real vanilla. It's going to be boring. It's going to be a lot of running. It's going to be turn around, inside zone, nothing, just boom. Okay, get used to that. In the fall, these guys are going to have a lot of learning curves because not only are you going to take and expand on the stuff they probably don't have down all the way yet, your base concepts and stuff, then you're going to throw more stuff at them and really confuse them trying to get ready for – North Dakota State and 
Ohio State in the first two weeks. It's just not easy. You're going to see some bumps in the offense next season. I'm predicting it now. I don't care who was hired as offensive coordinator. You got a new quarterback. You got a new offensive line, basically, other than Panay Sewell. There's going to be some learning curves on offense next season early on. I can hear people crying. Just buckle up for it now, okay? Save me the meltdowns. I can hear people crying. Yeah. I, I can hear people upset by that right now. I'm peeing in their Cheerios right now. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's a reality. I mean, you know, you can get away with it a little easier on defense. Well, you know, people can say, what about Avalos? The defense didn't struggle. It got better. Yeah, that's true. But he didn't come in and he actually didn't change all that much. Right. And he didn't have all the turnover. Right. In terms of players leaving. Exactly. And not to mention it's defense. It's a lot easier to learn than offense. You're mm-hmm. it's 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 bananas and oranges. It's yeah. not even remotely the same thing. Yeah. So um, you know, Joe Moorhead, again, I, I think Mario Cristobal, you know, I think he might have had a bit of a coming to Jesus moment and felt like Joe Moorhead's probably the guy that gives him the best chance of winning right away. That said, I still think there's gonna be some uh, growing pains. Let's talk about this a little more later because we haven't even scratched the surface on the best thing to happen to Oregon in a week. QB 11's going to join us. I love talking football with him. We were chatting during the national championship game, and I know Scoop Duck readers, you guys have your thoughts on him. Really smart dude, great interview, and he's done some research on Joe Moorhead. Yeah, he's definitely going to kind of let us know how easily Moorhead will integrate and what kind of offensive differences we'll see. So let's get him on the horn and just talk to him for a few minutes about this hire. He's QB 11 with us on the phone line right now. Scoop duck in hi-fi man. I, 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 uh, I think back to a conversation Justin and I had earlier on the pod where the ducks bring in Joe Moorhead and Justin says, he likes to hire, he'll fit in with the coaching staff, but there might be some differences between what he ran at Mississippi State and what Mario liked the Ducks to run in years past. Do you see any differences? Do you see like a, a mesh point here where we can take that offense and bring it to Eugene? I think that there's more similarities than differences. Um, where I think the big differences uh, occur in deployment. So, for instance, Oregon was notorious for substituting a lot uh, over the last two years, especially this last year, changing personnel groups multiple times throughout drives, subbing running backs almost every play. Penn State specifically um, didn't do any subbing during the drive. So whatever personnel group that they went into the drive with, uh, usually 11 personnel, which means one running back and one tight end, was the personnel group that they ran with, unless there was an injury, of course, throughout the entire drive. And so... He used personnel to kind of lock a defense in, too. So if you wanted to play nickel and get an extra defensive back on the field, now they had an advantage in the box. And then within that personnel group, they would um, basically substitute without substituting. So they would go from 11 personnel with a tight end and a running back to empty to a 10 personnel look with the tight end split out into the slot. So they would, they would, they would lock the personnel that you – uh, decide to use on the first play to drive in and then use it against you throughout the drive uh, by deploying their personnel differently. So I think that's going to be the first main differentiating factor that I think that will probably be implemented at Oregon. So uh, I guess in short, not in short, but one, one of the biggest <laughs> keys there would be that you could potentially see Oregon run with a little bit more tempo than without substituting. Is that maybe what you're getting at as well? 
doesn't even have to be necessarily tempo. The, most of the times that I saw Penn State utilize tempo was only when a team tried to sub-personnel a match. So um, if they got him into a disadvantaged look by, uh, for instance, when they had Barkley and Gusecki, obviously two players that we don't have, two really good players, um, they, would, they, they would use those two guys and then they would go trips with an empty set. So you'd have the three, the three true wide receivers to the field and then you'd have the running back and the tight end of the boundary. And what that would do is it would, first of all, it tells the quarterback what the coverage is going to be before the snap, just based on where the cornerbacks are. And then secondly, what happens is if they have a bunch of linebackers on the field, now you have a linebacker out over a running back or a tight end in space. And so you're able to isolate athletes on in good matchup situations by doing that. Um, so that's the first thing I think you'll see is just less substituting. Uh, so it'll be about finding who our best 11 is and then, uh, best utilizing them and getting them into into advantageous matchups. Yeah, you you mention some of the big names on those Penn State teams. Mike Gasicki is a freak. Those guys don't grow on trees. And and Saquon might be the best running back prospect of his generation. Obviously, the Ducks don't have those guys, but I think there's a <laughs> lot of names on this team that could benefit from this system. Uh, do do you have a, a couple of guys that? from what you've seen on film, you think, man, they can really shine? Um, yeah. I, I, the thing about Mike Gusecki is that he's a horrible blocker, a genuinely terrible. He's basically just a big receiver. So um, he was kind of a half tight end to the opposite of what Camp Moyer was. So if we have any balance there, uh, that's a that's going to cause a lot of dilemma and internal strife with defensive staffs that we go against. Because if a guy like McCormick can get healthy and he can be a serviceable pass catcher and a really good blocker, and now you really have to decide how you want to defend us and kind of pick your own poison. So uh, I think a guy like McCormick will really benefit Webb if he can get stronger. Um, and then our running backs need to be able to be good pass catchers and be uh, be well-rounded. So a guy like C.J. Verdell, even though he's not as good as Barkley, can uh, can certainly be a matchup against against most Pac-12 linebackers in the passing game. So obviously we know one thing about Mario Cristobal and whether Marcus Royals, the uh, offensive coordinator, whoever it is, but he likes to run the football. I mean, it's going to be a staple of the offense. How do you see that fitting in with Joe Moorhead and his philosophy and how he likes to run his offense? I think that fits just fine. Joe Moorhead runs the ball a lot. Um, he just kind of takes what's there. Uh, in terms of how they run the ball, even then, like, they run a lot of zone blocking. They ran a little bit more, like, counter and power stuff than Oregon ran because it seems like the Penn State offensive line was a little bit more comfortable in gap schemes than they were in zone schemes like Oregon was. And that's totally matched to your personnel. So it really just depends on uh, how those guys develop for us next year and how we deploy them. But they ran the ball first, and they, they did a lot of those same things. So I don't know that it's necessarily a problem. How it happens in terms of backfield action, if we run more offset back or more pistol, those will be the questions that come up, but I really don't see anything um, that they do that Cristobal hasn't already wanted to do. They, they do some different things, and so they have some wrinkles for sure. Um, I like some of the stuff that they did with speed option um, to the weak side of the formation. And Again, I've only probably watched six or seven games, but uh, they, they, they're a little bit more uh, multiple in the run game, but they run the ball all the same. And The one thing about Penn State specifically is their offensive line is horrible. They did not have good offensive line talent. So you think of what an offense with this kind of design can do with better athletes up front, it can be pretty special. Did you watch more Penn State tape or Mississippi State tape? How was that process? 
Uh, I'm just getting through it. So I started with Penn State naturally because I knew I knew about their personnel a lot more. Um, Mississippi State's had severe quarterback problems, like Braxton Bur- Braxton Burmeister level quarterback problems, and so I didn't. I watched some of it, and um, it, it's just it's not conducive because you, you don't see anything getting executed at a high level by the quarterback. Right. Um, and so I, I preferred to watch the Penn State stuff. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, yeah, Penn State had all this talent, but a lot of that same talent was there before before Moorhead took over. Guys like Gasecki, guys like Barkley, guys like Deshaun Hamilton, Godwin, all these big-time players were there before, and they were struggling offensively. So looking at the difference in deployment was uh, was a big deal. Um, you know, I know when Moorhead became first available, obviously not being retained by Mississippi State, you were pretty excited from the get-go, and I think you only got more excited at the prospect of him being, you know, Oregon's offensive coordinator. What makes you so excited about Moorhead, and, and why do you think he will be successful at Oregon? Um, I mean, obviously I'm speculating just like everybody else. I don't have access to any information that other people don't have. Uh, but watching his offenses, just the way that um, that he dictates matchup, I think is Probably the thing I'm most excited for. I, I, I've really been opposed to how much we've substituted the last couple of years, and seeing a coach who really prioritizes locking defenses personnel in, um, that's going to be something that makes life easier for all of our quarterbacks um, and our running backs. I mean, really just everyone could from a matchup perspective. Um, the passing game, uh, I, I love the way that they use RPO and zone read. They they don't run the, they run the quarterback a good amount with a guy like Trace McSorley, but it's not a whole lot more than we run our quarterbacks. Um, and I think that'll be dependent on what our depth looks like as well. But, yeah, I mean, just just the way that he attacks space, matchups, um, formationally, some of the things that they do are really interesting. Uh, the way that they run the ball. Um, they, and it's not all necessarily just straight handoff. For instance, against Ohio State, they did a lot of shovel pass stuff where they have a player like uh, – Bosa, and you instead of blocking him, you isolate him in space and make him the read player and just take him out. So, um, I, I think all of that stuff is really is really going to cross over with what Crystal Ball's idea of the offense is. Is so, it's exciting. I'm uh, I'm excited to see what we can do next year. Um, one of the things I'm kind of curious about, you know, were you able to kind of glean how much experience he's had working with quarterbacks? Because that's really been one of the keys to this offensive coordinator search in my mind is, is finding a guy that has some quarterback experience. You know, if Oregon was to promote Jim Mastro, I think that was one of the big question marks there. You know, how much involvement could he have with quarterbacks? So from, from what you've seen, how has he been able to, to coach or improve or include, uh, you know, quarterbacks in his previous uh, OC stops? Well, the thing that I noticed is he's worked with quarterbacks almost exclusively in his, throughout his entire career. Um, but all the way back to when he was at UConn to Akron, when he was the head coach at Fordham and took them from one and ten to twelve and two in three years, um, all of those quarterbacks set records at, perspective, at, the, at the schools they were at. So every everywhere he's been, except for Mississippi State, um, with kind of a unique situation in regards to injuries, the personnel that was left behind by Dan Mullen um, at, at that position, uh, he's been very good. I mean, a guy like Trace McSorley. He's, he was a sixth-round pick. He's not very big. His arm is okay. He's a good athlete. But he, he was nothing incredibly special from a, just an athletic talent perspective. But he ended up being a really good player. And his numbers really dropped the year that Moorhead took off. And 
Um, there might be some other factors for that, but it, he, the, the, if you read, there's an article on SB Nation that was posted on the board about the five tenants of his offense, and the uh, the, the main thing that <coughs> excuse me, he want that that he talks about is empowering the quarterback by giving him options and choices, and I think that everywhere he's been, the statistics will back up that he's effectively done that. I think that's a great fit for Oregon. You know, last couple games of the year, and the and the Ducks really let Justin Herbert run wild. I, I just imagine giving that same freedom to Tyler Shuck next year. Sounds great. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. It's gonna be very interesting to see because I do think that Moorhead will benefit from having Cristobal, that offensive line group, and Mastro to help in the run game. Just because he again he hasn't had good personnel at the line of scrimmage anywhere he's been. So um, having that really is like giving a shark a fork and a knife. Uh, one of the things that uh, – how do I want to say this? One of the things that – I think this is a great hire. Okay, here's how I want to say this. I think it's a great hire. I know fans are excited. I know you're excited. But one of the big warning points that I talked about leading into us bringing you on is the fact that Oregon is about to bring in a new quarterback – uh, basically four-fifths of, of an offensive line that's going to be all brand new, or at least newly starting, and you're bringing in a brand new offensive coordinator. So with all of those factors in mind, and I know that you know Oregon wants to get back to offense, everybody's excited about Moorhead, how much should we maybe kind of temper expectations, understanding, and maybe what might be the process for Moorhead once he arrives to kind of get this to you know, being an offense that's on the same page and understands what he's trying to do? Yeah, I mean, it just depends um, on the quarterback situation like you alluded to. Is Tyler Shuck really going to – is he the guy? Is he going to be a high-level player in his first time, his first year starting? Um, it's going to take a lot of development for that to be the case. And beyond him, you have a quarterback who had a shoulder surgery and for all intents and purposes couldn't even practice this year in Kale Millen, and then two true freshmen. So do you go out and get a transfer? Do you, do you trust Shuck? I mean, that's going to be – kind of the first order of business for Jim for Jim Moorhead when he gets here is to watch film, talk with those guys and kind of see where he feels how he feels about the quarterback position and then see if there's any even quality options out there because frankly there Jamie Newman was a was a pretty good prospect. Jordan Love was obviously awesome, but he went pro. And you have a running back out there and and De'Ara King. So I, I don't see anything that really jumps off the page on the on the transfer market and you have and you have one guy with any college experience. So uh, tempering expectations for the quarterback position, I think, is going to be important. Uh, the offensive line is going to have talent, but it's going to take that group time. So the one thing that, that works in his favor is that Oregon's offense wasn't exactly very productive last year. And so even with those things working against them, with some improved talent at the skill positions, you could still see some statistical improvement. But it's all going to depend on the growth of the quarterback position, just like every other year and every other team. And and I'll back up. I know you know. Obviously, Newman has elected to transfer to Georgia from Wake Forest. But you know, I had you watch some tape on him, and I think you thought he was a good player. But I don't. It, it, my impression was you didn't come away thinking, "Yeah, this is the dude we got to have him. He's leading us to a natty." Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I thought he was a good player. I thought he was solid. Um, but there was nothing. If he was, here's the deal with grad transfers, and this goes for every position. And this is my opinion and my philosophy on it. But if, if a guy is really a high-end player, they're probably going pro. They're not going to grad transfer. Right. So 
when you're dealing with grad transfers, unless they're a guy that's maybe a, a good football player but doesn't have the pro prospects because of their size or uh, they're, they're missing a piece of their game or they were in an offense that didn't really showcase them, that wasn't the case with Jamie Newman. Jamie Newman threw the ball threw the ball downfield a lot. He threw the ball downfield to some really good receivers. So I just I thought he was a good player. I didn't think he was uh, he w- he was a game changer. But I, the, the only guy that I watched that you had sent me was uh, Jordan Love, and that was the guy that um, really could benefit from a change of offense and a change of scenery and some better supporting talent. But like we were just talking about, he decided to go pro, and he's probably still going to be a first or second round draft pick. So. Yeah, it's probably a good choice for him in the end. And I, yeah. I guess I just wonder, I guess one of the things I think about, and I agree with your philosophy because it, it's very rare that a transfer leaves a school, you know, to help improve their stock because I, I feel like good players get noticed no matter where they are. Um, you know, but the one thing I, I think back to is there's, I'll use Jalen Hurts as an example. I think he's a really good college quarterback that's probably not going to make an NFL quarterback. You know, I guess you maybe go and look for a guy like that um, if you can find. I, I still think Oregon will bring bring in a grad transfer at quarterback. I just don't know who it'll be at this point. Could be KJ Costello. I mean, he's got some tools. If he gets, if he can get healthy and get things going, he could be a dude. But you know, those are a lot of big ifs, obviously. Hey, but you're 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 finding projects um, or or guys that need to get healthy or have some injury past. Or there's, but there's always you know, I don't like to call it baggage, but there's always sure. some variable with those guys for the most part. Like even if we went back and we in retrospect, looked at every single grad transfer Oregon's taken at every position. Guys like Scott Pagano, guys like Dylan Kano, did not they, they weren't bad players. They were solid contributors, but they didn't have like high NFL upside. So at a position like quarterback, you're, you're, you're kind of setting a ceiling for yourself, in my opinion, with those types of guys. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, a, guy like, a guy like KJ Costello could be valuable, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if he got beat out by Tyler Shuck. And so, is that a situation where he wants to come into an open competition? It's going to be it's going to be an interesting storyline to monitor. Yeah, or he could just end up never playing. You know what I mean? Just get here and, like you said, get relegated to the bench or never be healthy. So yeah, it's definitely a risk. Um, I'm gonna. I don't know if Matt has any more, but the last question I have for you before we send you off, and Matt might have more, is if. Uh, and so this is uh, obviously we talk a lot in hypotheticals. It's just what we do, uh, and that's what we're here for. Had Oregon not hired Joe Moorhead, or he's not available, uh, the, the the next two realistic candidates, as you know, that uh, you know Mario Cristobal seemed to be interested in were Will Hall and Jed Fish. Who of those guys did you like a little bit more? Discounting Joe Moorhead. Uh, that's tough because I don't know a whole lot about either one of them, other than just the stuff that we can read on the internet. Um, from the limited tape I watched on both of them and what I know from the stuff I've read and talking to you and uh, probably Will Hall because, but it's close. I mean, they're both, I thought they were all three really good prospects and I didn't think that I had the expertise or uh, information to really differentiate them. I liked Moorhead because I have a personal bias towards his style of offense. Um, and I thought that it would be, you give him the type of offensive line and skill talent that we're going to be able to recruit and it could be really, really successful. But I think uh, Will Hall and Jed Fish were both really good candidates, not to dodge the question. No, that's fine. What what style of offense would you label Moorhead's offense if you had to? I, I mean, I know everybody's kind of blending everything anymore, but... Yeah, I mean, it's... it's spread. So, like, let's, let's put, like, a definition on what a spread offense is. A spread offense is just attacking numbers. I don't think, like, you don't have to run zone read or triple option or... 
there's no specific concept that you have to run to be a spread offense other than you're probably not running a bunch of 12, 13, and 23 personnel. Right. And you are, you're attacking numbers whenever they give them to you. So you're trying to get players out of the box to run the ball, and if there's players in the box, you want to throw the ball to get them out of it. I mean, that's kind of the basic concept. And we're using the RPO game to take a player out or the zone read game. It's really all different ways of getting the same pig. So um, <laughs> I think uh, Moorhead runs a pretty pro-style spread offense. And I, I use the word pro-style when I'm talking about a passing game. Uh, there's a lot of progression stuff in there. From what I've seen, um, they, they're they very versatile in the, in the way that they deploy the personnel, but it's a spread offense at the end of the day. They, they're using numbers. Um, but it's, it, that doesn't mean that like having a spread offense doesn't inherently make you finesse or soft, uh, which I think is a common misconception. Uh, I think you can run the ball with power, and I think they did that with Barkley behind a pretty bad offensive line. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do here. Is that look? I don't pretend to be an offensive guru, but is that somewhat similar uh, to what Chris Peterson's been running at Washington the last few years? No, no, no they're they're a lot more vanilla pro style. Um, they obviously have RPOs and stuff in there, but they use a lot more shifts. I would compare what Chris Peterson does a lot more to what um, Paul Chris does. Now the personnel strengths are a little different at Washington and Wisconsin, right. but they use a lot of 12 personnel, a lot of shifts. They subgroups a lot. Um, they, they use motion, a lot more under center. They don't like the spacing I think is a key component too, uh, with Moorhead and even Oregon, you saw pretty good spacing last year, except for the times when we just couldn't throw the ball and we kind of went into a show in our 12 personnel package and decided that, we're going to let our offensive line win us the game. But I don't, I don't know that that's what Crystal Ball wants to be. I know that it's what happened at times, but I think that's really just being a coach and playing to the strength of your personnel. Yeah. I love that question about Joe Moorhead and you know, compare him to the other guys and then compare him to other staffs because sure. there's something we were bouncing off, uh, off mic before we recorded this. QB, do you see any comparison – uh, with Moorhead versus what you watched Monday night? Well, it's funny you say that because Joe Brady did work for Joe Moorhead at Penn State as a grad assistant. So there are I, – I, I noticed some some uh, similarities. Like in the passing game, for instance, like whenever you go against man coverage, you want to have some form of what's called a chase route, so something coming across the field where you have athletes chasing, chasing offensive players. Uh, create space, gives your guys, your fast players, an opportunity to create separation. So you have a lot of that stuff, a lot of different levels concepts where you've got uh, mesh mesh routes coming across, trying to get picks to get players open in space. So you have a lot of that stuff. Uh, the way that they use personnel is the same. Uh, just you have Edward Zolaire and, and Thaddeus Moss instead of what Moorhead had at, mm-hmm. at Penn State, which was Gusecki and Barkley. Um, obviously, they had a generational quarterback at LSU, and so they're going to ride him. And like when a guy is ninety percent completion percentage yeah. against drop eight coverages, yeah. you're going to throw the ball eighty percent of the time. So it's different in terms of the balance that you have. But if we had a quarterback like that, I'm pretty sure we'd throw the ball every play too. Sure. So um, there are a lot of similarities in the terms in terms of deployment, formationally, the way that they both use the back and the tight end in the passing game, trying to isolate them on linebackers and safeties. But you have to have those Jimmys and Joes for those. For those matchups to be effective, like no disrespect to Hunter Kempmoyer, but if we line up with Hunter Kempmoyer at tight end, we can run all the same plays that Joe Brady ran in the national championship, 
and it won't matter because you have to you have to be able to beat a guy and create separation. Is so I guess I have a follow up question to that. From what we saw at Oregon this past season, was one of I don't want to say the the only issue, but was one of the issues the fact that you know Marcus Oriol was not able to uh, implement. Uh, the chase routes or the mesh routes that you uh, mentioned there for LSU and Joe Moorhead, or is it more of a fact you think Oregon just didn't have the guys to run those effectively and probably just stayed away from them? Oh, we ran them. I mean, we ran a lot of that stuff, the mesh, the mesh stuff. We didn't go five wide. We didn't, I mean, again, our personnel didn't allow us to do everything that they do. Right. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But another thing that I left out here um, that I noticed, especially against a team like Ohio State, I watched both the Ohio State games that Moore had coached in. Uh, Jamar Chase scored, I think, three touchdowns on slot fades against single high coverage. The, Deshaun Hamilton did the exact same thing when they beat Ohio State at, at the horseshoe. They, they isolated. <coughs> they ran the ball well. And so what, what's Ohio State naturally going to do? They're going to bring extra bodies into the box. Yeah. And then now you have one high safety. You've got the whole field to spread, and they do a good job with their receivers of spacing and stretching the field from the side from sideline to sideline. And so now you have one high safety that has to cover the whole field. So if you're if you can win that matchup in the slot, there's a ton of room for error for the throw, and the safety has a long way to go to cover that much ground and get over the top of it. So they, like LSU hit it three times for touchdowns. I'm pretty sure Deshaun Hamilton caught two against Ohio State in 2017. Might have been 2018. Um, so there's a lot of crossover conceptually. And the deal is with Oregon last year, is, um, I think we could all agree, regardless of if you think Herbert was the best quarterback of all time or not, that the thing that he had, he, he didn't prove it, but the thing he needed to work on the most was his touch on downfield throws. He, he kind of had a tendency to really drive them instead of uh, giving, giving guys opportunities to get underneath it. And, uh, a lot of those concepts that, that LSU ran and Penn State ran requires a lot of touch and then also guys that can beat man. And if a team wants to play you and they want to play one high safety and play cover one and cover three with, with tighter coverage, then you've got you to gotta be able to beat man and you've got to be able to create some separation to give yourself a chance to, to run the ball. So one of the big keys for Moorhead will be finding finding dudes out on the perimeter that can do that, that can beat man and get open efficiently. Because, I, I mean, I, I liked Oregon's wide receivers last year, and I thought they were better. But let's face it, you go watch, you know, LSU or Clemson, and, and you're talking about two different stratospheres from that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the personnel needs to improve. There's guys on our team, I think, that can make plays in that type of system. Um, but it's it's got to work. Like I think a guy like Devin Williams, for instance, is a really is gonna he's gonna have to be big time next year because having a guy that's six four, two hundred and ten pounds or whatever he is, and can run and has the body control that he has, he could do a lot of things um, that will help everybody else around him as well. Uh, getting camp, getting Hunter Camp, or Hunter Campmore, getting Cameron McCormick healthy will be big, and then the development of guys like Herbert and Webb and. We'll see what Will Hoyt and Waters can do and Pittman in his second year. I think a guy like Pittman can, can be really effective as well. So I think that there is players in the cupboard. Do we have a Jamar Chase or a Justin Jefferson or a T. Higgins right now? Right. I don't think so, and I think the only chance uh, we have of that on the roster right now is probably Devin Williams. But I think we have, especially we're not playing Clemson and LSU on a week-to-week basis in the Pac-12 Relative to what we see, we should be able to do all of those things against everybody we play. Good. 
Well, it's good stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. we appreciate you coming on. I think it, I think it helps fans really kind of understand what they're getting into with, uh, with Joe Moorhead, and, and I, and I appreciate that they're excited. But uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm here to kind of temper their expectations a little bit just because of the, uh, the learning, you know, the learning curve that's coming up ahead for everybody. But uh, uh, QB, we appreciate your time, man, and appreciate the knowledge, and and we'll have you back on again here uh, soon. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on, and I agree. Like expectations need to be tempered and realistic and we need to understand that we are replacing four offensive linemen who are seniors who really did make a lot of mistakes especially in pass pro um in terms of picking up blitzes and, and, and things of those nature and so when you replace that there's going to be a, a learning curve and that learning curve is going to coexist with uh even though there's going to be crossover it is a new offense a new play caller and a new quarterback so there's gonna, there's going to be times where we want to pull our hair out because the execution isn't there and uh, it's just it's just part of it, but it's also a growing process. With especially if you have Shuck ends up being the guy, and you're going to have a multi-year starter possibly. Yeah. Um, the, those growing pains pay dividends down the road. Yeah, and you'll have an offensive line that has an opportunity to to play together for a couple years too, for the most part, which is big as well. Yeah, I mean, if if what we assume is going to happen, uh, that some combination of Sewell, Jones, Tanu, and Sala are at least four of the five starters. Um, after next year, obviously, Sewell will be gone, but everyone else in that group should be back. Right. So you'll have four returning starters going into the next year and possibly a returning starter quarterback. And so, uh, and if it's not a returning starter quarterback and we go the grad transfer route for this year, you're going to have a third-year junior or fourth-year junior who has been in the system. Um so it'll be really interesting to see, but everyone on the roster is learning a new offense now. So yeah, well, and you'll have a couple redshirt freshmen that have had a year to develop as well to push that, um, you know, four-year junior that you mentioned too. So a little bit yep, different. Yep, but you got to go get one, and you can't miss a year. So it's yeah. going to be really important to see who we go after in twenty-one at quarterback. Just remember, Duck fans, that uh, Justin Fields was committed to Joe Mur- Moorhead at Penn State at one point before Moorhead took off, and I think he ended up at Georgia. So uh, Moorhead's a good recruiter of quarterbacks. He, he got he got some good players up there. Yeah, that'll be a huge difference. I think quarterback recruiting's been what do I want to say? Yeah, maybe a little above average. Average? I don't know, but it could be a little better. And I think Moorhead will be better in that regard. Hopefully. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like we've had some good players, but you would think even during the Chip and Mark Elfridge days that like the number the top five quarterbacks in the country would be fighting over the opportunity to play in an offense like we ran. Mm-hmm. And it just never was that way. We always kind of got beat for guys. Guys like Deshaun Watson. I thought we didn't want Deshaun Watson, but he went to Clemson. And at that point, Clemson wasn't even really clicking. Right, right, right. And same thing with Taj Boyd and a lot of a lot of quarterbacks out there that went other places. Terrell Pryor. So by getting somebody that hopefully can, can actually finish the deal on a recruitment like that uh, gives gives the offense a lot more upside. Yeah, if that offense can match the defense, watch out. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that's going to help the offense, too, is they're going to make mistakes, and they're going to have a unit that can really cover up for them. Yeah, help bail them out. It would be a lot more like the Big Big Ten than anything else. You know what I mean? They play a lot of defense, run the ball, control. I'm not saying that's what Oregon will do offensively, but it just, you know, what happens in that conference a lot of the year, um, rather than the Pac-12 that's wide open. <laughs> yeah, I just think that also uh, remembering that, we aren't playing a juggernaut schedule in conference. Right. Like, for instance, we scored, what, 50 points against 
Colorado without really even trying this year. Yeah. With with a better scheme. And again, I I actually defended Marcus Arroyo throughout the year. I didn't I didn't think he was the limiting factor for us in terms of scoring points this year. Right. About the scheme. There's a lot of crossover. Uh, but if Moorhead is as good as his billing, uh, we we should and the talent that we have is still better than everybody in our conference. We we should be able to score a lot of points. Sure. The offense should be better is is what you're saying. It seems like it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's no reason for it not to be. Right. That feels right. like the headline to me. The offense should be better. <laughs> Morehead should be an improvement. Yeah. Uh, a whole lot to be excited about. And, and like you guys said, some things to watch and temper expectations. Joe Morehead, the new Ducks OC. Kenzano uh, confirming that, by the way. Uh, he says there's an agreement in principle. So I feel safe oh, okay. about this. Yeah. Oh, that's um, concerning. If he's reporting it, we might not get him. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Might want to turn the wagons. Right. Uh, QB11, yeah. love having you on, my friend. Thank you for your help. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Anytime. Yeah, it makes me laugh a little bit now that I think about it. <laughs> uh, want to spend this like five, maybe ten, nothing too crazy, on national championship. Yeah. Yes. How about that yeah. game? Nah, fun game. Uh, you know, I don't uh, – I. I think I tweeted as much. I can't remember, but you know, I had uh, kids basketball practice uh, until like six thirty. I think yeah, six thirty. Then I went home and ate, and I had insulated, which is hard to do with my phone. Insulated myself from getting any score updates. I had had xed out of anything that looked even remotely like it was going to tell me anything about the game. And I didn't end up watching it until like eight thirty or so is when I started the game. Wow! But I, I, I got to watch it. I'd record, obviously I'd uh, TiVo'd it, but I, I watched it and was able to skip through all the commercials and stuff. Got to it, you know, got through the game in like on a little over two hours or something. Nice, um, great game though. I mean, gosh, what a what a ga- fun game! I think it was a really fun game. You know, obviously, I felt like going into the game, LSU was going to win. Uh, maybe wasn't I didn't think they'd win quite as convincingly as they did. I don't know. They just man, I I don't think the score accurately reflected just how much LSU beat up on Clemson. I agree. I I think going into that game, there were two big camps of people. Uh, the first camp thought LSU is better, mm-hmm. and and they played better schools. They beat Alabama. They beat Auburn. They beat Florida. They beat Georgia. They beat Oklahoma. Yeah, right. Battle tested. That's the first camp. And the second camp said, I understand that, but Clemson has experience. They've been sure. here before, been there, done that. And that's where I leaned. I, I thought Clemson was going to have that edge, better coach, better quarterback, and the experience. And I was blown away. Yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't that Clemson lost that game. It was that LSU just stole it from them. Yeah. Just inc- I mean, Joe Brady... That guy, I'm, I'm so excited for him to be an NFL offensive coordinator next year right. in Carolina. And Joe Burrow, who was mocked in the sixth round last year, right. not an NFL prospect, right. not on an NFL radar at all, this guy almost certainly broke a rib in the second quarter of the yeah. national championship <laughs> yeah. game, couldn't breathe as he's walking off the field, and he gets hit all third quarter because LSU gives him no chips, no protection. Right. And he still throws for 400 yards and five touchdowns. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, to me, the only reason that game was as close as it was was because of Clemson's experience. I mean, had they probably not been there before, it probably would have been even worse, really. And, and 
I mean, it's it's tough to say because you got Trevor Lawrence, you got Etienne, you got some really good players on Clemson. But man, I mean, all the way across the board, offense and defense, LSU was loaded. Yeah, and, and you had obviously a very bright mind on offense there, and Joe Brady uh, helping the offensive coordinator, and, and then Joe Burrow. I mean, you really had a perfect storm there, which. You know, to me, I think it's great for Ed Orgeron. I think it's, you know, he, he kept giving praise to the state of the great state of Louisiana. And, and uh, you know, I thought all of it was great, and it's a great way for Burrow to, to win. But, man, to me, and I wrote about this, it really showed me the difference of where Oregon is at currently and where those those types of teams are. Yes. They are definitely there, a cut above. There is a golfing class. Yeah. Now, I will offer this, and, and we talked about this off air as we were coming in. And I think we, we hit on this a little bit before we had QB11 as well. LSU, historically, that's a old-school, smash-mouth, power football kind of team. Right. And Ed Ogeron said, you know what? I didn't get the USC job. They didn't think I was good enough. And I might get fired from this LSU job. Yeah. They, I got to take a swing. Yeah. Right. If I want to win a national championship, I need to take a risk. And I need this Joe Brady guy. Right. Who runs an, a completely different style of offense. And it worked. Yeah. Right. You take that risk. You get out of your comfort zone and it might not work, but it won them a national title. I think the Ducks can apply a similar approach with Joe Moorhead. Does he throw the ball maybe a little more than Mario wants or or throw out of formations that might not fit what the Ducks have done in years past, right? Uh, you're not going to see any 13 personnel. It might not see a lot of jumbo kind of stuff. But you step out of your comfort zone, you take a risk, and it might win you a national title. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I think – I think it's a bit of a ledge for Mario Cristobal to walk out on, a guy who's a micromanager of, of pretty much every facet of Oregon football. Um, and he is. He's a workaholic. And you kind of walked out on a ledge a little bit and said, man, I'm, I'm looking what LSU is doing here. Um, maybe I need to, you know, maybe I need to adapt a little bit here. And, yeah. I, and I, again, is Oregon going to be a, an air raid, throw the ball 65 times a game type of team? Of course not. But you can still implement it into what you're doing and still be successful at running the ball. One of the here's one one of the things that I thought made Chip Kelly as smart of an offensive guy as he was. He'd run with tempo, run with speed, run the spread. Obviously, attacking numbers. He did all of that. But when it mattered most, when the game was on the line and he needed a seven or an eight minute drive or tried to take it the air of the football, he could do that and he would do that which went against everything else that he'd done the rest of the game. You know, it was it was a 45-minute scoring drive, three plays, 65 yards, touchdown. It was right. – yeah, that's what he did to get there. Right. But when it mattered and when he needed to, he even knew, even Chip Kelly knew to adapt and say, hey, look, we need to control the ball here. We need to run some time off the clock. We don't need to score quick. Let's get, let's get out of this football game. And he would do that in football games and do it successfully. So – I think you're taking Mario Cristobal going from the opposite approach of let's run the ball, let's run the ball, let's play this from a st- statistical standpoint and saying, hey, we could throw the ball a little bit here and open things up a little bit and still get the, the same result, hopefully. Uh, and one more point, and then I think we're, we're tied on time, so we might just go a little bit on basketball and then wrap it. Well, we got one more big thing to talk about. Oh, God. It'll just take a second, though. Okay. 
The okay. juniors are coming back, man. All right. That, the big news. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I had totally spaced on yeah. that. Uh, you keep Andy Avalos. Yes. He doesn't go to Pullman, nope. which I feared could have happened. Yeah. And and you have uh, all those returners. Yeah. I mean, you're returning your two starting corners who, in my opinion, have been two of your most improved players the last two years. Yes. They just yes. they have gotten better. No they, doubt. They have gotten better. They have gotten more consistent. Teams are hesitant to throw the ball against those guys. Um, anytime Mikel Wright goes out there, they're going right at him instead, which they probably got away with a little bit here as a, a freshman, but they're not going to anymore. I mean, you're talking about a, 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 a. There were a number of holes on this roster when Mario Cristobal took over, and cornerback, defensive back was was one of the worst rooms in that in that locker room. Right. It had the most work to do, and and at the beginning that did include Thomas Graham and Diamandor Lenore, but they were true freshmen thrown into the fire. You know, that's not fair. They've grown a ton. Brady Breeze, obviously, by the end of the season, became a real ball player, you know, has helped the safety group a lot. Javon Holland, you know, obviously, you recruited him last year and got him to sign and commit and play last year and played this year. He's a dude, of course, no doubt. But now you're going to really elevate that room because you brought in Mikhail Wright, who's who's a future star. And you've got Dante Manning coming in, who signed, who looked great at the uh, uh, at the Under Armour game. Right. Um, you've got Bennett Williams coming in, who's a who was a freshman All-American. He's got JUCO experience. He's a guy that's going to help. You've turned that room around. Defensive line was another one that was really getting short on bodies and talent. Next thing you know, you got Thibodeau on one side, you've got uh, Faliu on the other side, who's who's been injured, but when he's out there, the end of the season, he came on really strong. Mm-hmm. And then you've got everybody's favorite, Jordan Scott, in the middle there. I mean, Fat Mac. Fat Mac. I, I mean, I love Jordan Scott not only because of the player he is and what he allows that defense to do. He's a great team guy. He's a great personality. You see him on Twitter. He's just one of those people that you're going to root for because you really enjoy the person he is. And I've heard nothing but great things about him. Yeah. Um, you know, I know he mentioned in his press conference on Monday, you know, being the first person in his family to graduate from college. I mean, that's freaking special. It's just yeah. special. It's awesome. Yeah. And, and so to bring that experience back with Andy Avalos in the second year, the, the Oregon defense is going to be outright filthy. I mean, teams are going to be afraid to play this Oregon defense. I agree. And, and I've said for a year now, if Graham and Lenore had left early, yeah. they are second-round picks, yeah. which that's nothing to scoff at. No? Second-round pick, that means you're probably getting at least a million dollars guaranteed. Right. You're getting some cash to secure your financial future. If I had a son and they were in that position, I would say go to the NFL. So this means an awful lot for these guys to say, we could be second-rounders this year or we could spend another year in the weight room and spend another year studying tape in the facility and honing our skills and practice and on Saturdays and turn that second round pick into a first round pick. Yeah. Yeah. And they were bubble second round guys. I think, I think, you know, maybe Lenore, you're talking like a third rounder. You're talking about the middle rounds, I think. And I I think I agree with you in in the sense that I think they have a a really uh, Jordan Scott, I love him. I'm glad he came back, but I think he's going to be what he's going to be, whether yes. he went this year or next year. And, and that doesn't mean he's going to have a bad NFL career. Right. It just means he will be pigeonholed into a specific role. Yeah. And I think he's, I think he came back for the ride this year. I, I do sense there's some early optimism about where this team could be next year. Obviously, you've got two pretty big road hurdles to start the season, but you get past those. And you're talking about a season that sets up really well for Oregon. And obviously with the type of defense Oregon's going to have with these guys coming back, 
they're going to be a. I mean, they're a top five team in a lot of these yeah. early polls I see now or, or rankings now. Yes, which it's because of the defense. It's much deserved. Last year when Oregon was being talked about as a top ten team, I remember before I was like, eh, you know, I don't know, guys. We'll see. It's kind of there. I don't know. And they, I think they kind of grew into it. You know what I mean? At the right. beginning of the season, I didn't see a top ten team. I think they grew into it and deserved to be by the end of the season. No question. I think this one enters this team enters in with more expectations, and obviously, if we can figure out what we have in, in Tyler Shuck, I think they're probably deserve much more deserved at this point. Oregon looks like it should be a top five to ten team to start next season, and and we'll see. Could be a hell of a ride. Yeah. All right. Real quick, wrapping up. Uh, basketball. Duck men sweep the Arizona schools. Big. Wish I could say the same for the Duck ladies, but yeah. you got tons of time. Uh, Washington now. Yeah. How do you feel about this weekend? <clears throat> you know, the, the men, uh, you know, they're really kind of coming into their own. Peyton Pritchard's playing some unre- unreal basketball. You know, uh, uh, Duarte, they, they've, they, and Duarte and Dante, you know, they've both really kind of come along and been a couple bright spots here. Um, the addition of Dante's really made this team so much more versatile, and I think they're really growing from that. You know, I, I think they were, Oregon was already a pretty good team and surpassing a lot of expectations, but you've gone and thrown out a big body like they, man, I, I like Okoro. I know he's a team guy, but he's always going to kind of just be, be one of those guys he is out who there. He is. Yeah, he's not going to carry your team. You might be to get a big game from him here or there, but to ask him to score 15 and, and pull down 10 rebounds, he's not going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy like Dante has a little bit more in his repertoire, and he can do that. Probably not every game at this point, but he can do that. And, and I think to have both those guys really makes you just such a better team. I'm excited about the men. I'm not worried about the women in the least. I know it was a tough split. Uh, you know, obviously, you, the expectation is for you to win every game you step on the court. Um, I'm sure that's the expectation for Sabrina, you know, Coach Graves. But at the end of the day, I'm looking at the big picture here. Uh, that's still a hell of a basketball team, and when they're hot, they are they are un unmatched. Right. When right. they're hot, when they're on. And and you're a soccer guy. I think it's true in soccer. It it it's real in basketball. If you can't shoot, yeah. it doesn't matter how sweet your offense is. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter if you got open. Yeah. It doesn't matter what screen you had or what cut you made. Sometimes you just can't shoot. And yeah. they had a night where they got open, they got good looks, nothing came down. Yeah. If and that you, happens. If you're if you're clanking open jump shots, I mean, you know what they say, they tell you to shoot through it, right? They tell you to shoot. Well, sometimes it takes a little longer than you'd like to shoot through that cold <laughs> slump. But And, you know, I, I think it's going to catch Oregon every now and then when you're a team that does tend to shoot the ball a lot. And they're, they are used to shooting from at a high percentage. But obviously, we talked to Coach Graves about that, and he raved about their three-point percentage from last year um, being one of, one of the elite in all of basketball, including the NBA. Um, you know, you, you live by the three, you die by the three. Not that this team lives by the three, but – those cold nights can be really cold sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and and hopefully this is a wake up call, and they're not so cold when they got to go to Corvallis. That's what I think it proves. I mean, let's face it. We said, you know, both of us agreed that there was no way this Oregon team got through the Pac-12 unscathed. Yeah, it's a hell of a conference in women's basketball right yes. now. Very, yes. very the best in the country. Very yes. good. And so I, 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 uh, I still feel there's always a lot to learn from in a loss, and it doesn't matter how experienced your team or what sport you're talking about. There's a lot to learn from in a loss. Uh, I think if the women drop a couple early here, it's only going to help them when it when it matters. 
I'm with you. All right, that's uh, Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi, Matt Bagley, Justin Hopkins. Thank you for listening, and if you have time, rate us on whatever podcast app you use to listen. Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi, thanks for listening, everybody. I can do this now.